Hello and welcome to this edition of Inside Warhawk Athletics presented by Educators Credit Union. This is a new series we recently launched to showcase the personalities in and around UW-Whitewater Athletics. My name is Chris Lindicky and I'm an Assistant Athletic Director for the Warhawks. Today's guest is Pat Miller, who's in his 20th season as head men's basketball coach at UW-Whitewater. Coach Miller has led the Warhawks to six WIC championships, four conference tournament titles, and nine NCAA tournament appearances, including national championships in 2012 and 2014. Coach Miller enters the 2021 season with the 394 and 141 record, good for a 736 winning percentage, and is a four-time WIC Coach of the Year. As a three-year guard for the Warhawks from 1986 to 1989, Coach Miller helped UW-Whitewater claim the national championship in 1989 and shot 48% from three-point range for his career. He graduated from UW-Whitewater that same year and was the WIC Max Sparger Scholar-Athlete as a senior. Coach, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure, Chris. It's always good to talk with you. Feelings mutual. Um, well, let's get right into it, Pat. Um, the season's about to start. Uh, we're about, what, five days from February 3rd when we welcome UW-Stevens Point to Ketchell Gymnasium for uh, an actual game of basketball against a different opponent. Um, so tell me a little bit about the state of the team, uh, how things are going so far, and how preparations have been going in, in, uh, in front of this 2021 season. Well, obviously, it's been an incredibly unique year with with the, the amount of uncertainty, um, changing of of practice protocols, changing of practice dates. You know, if you go back to you know, we typically start mid mid October. We were able to start earlier. Uh, we weren't on a week designation. We were on a day designation per the NCAA. Uh, none of our players are going to use eligibility. There's a blanket waiver. So there's a lot of factors that that have been. Uh, completely different for us. Um, if, if you go back to October, November, I think there was a lot of doubt as to whether or not we were going to be able to play any games, uh, a lot of uncertainty uh, in terms of what a season would look like. Uh, and fortunately, you know, we're going to play eight conference games and a conference tournament, as you noted, starting starting next week. And this team has been really good. They've been really resilient. Uh, we have a very young team. We have 15 freshmen and sophomores on the roster. Uh, we have one senior who, who's out with an injury. He has a, a fracture in his leg and, and will not be with us for the remainder of the year. So, you know, we've approached this from day one as an opportunity to really learn, uh, really implement our system uh, more deeply than we would have the opportunity to in the past because we weren't doing game preparation. So, you know, I, I've been really happy with this group, their, their work ethic. Um, you know, oftentimes you have groups that are capable but but somewhat unwilling in terms of what they're willing to buy into and do for their team teammates and this is a very willing group of individuals uh, their buy-in has been very good um they pass the ball well they move the ball they they're unselfish so we, we've been really pleased with the preparation and, and pleased with this group yeah you touched on it. it it is a young team um you know i think it was 13 newcomers to the team this year um so uh, a couple of transfers in that bunch as well um, you know, but tell me a little bit about this year's team and what we can expect to see, um, some of the strengths and then, you know, some of the areas that you're, you expect improvements throughout the, the, the season. Well, they'll get better as they play. I think obviously going into it, the thing that is uncertain is how are these young guys going to respond to the level of competition that we're going to play against initially. Typically, 
you know, we have two scrimmages against outside opponents. We have a, a, a an extensive non-conference schedule and in that schedule in the non-conference portion, depending on your team is how you schedule. And with a young team like this, we, we would have tried to schedule some opponents that would allow us to prepare. You know, we wouldn't go out and schedule a bunch of CCIW teams and, you know, high level top 20 opponents, maybe a couple of those for preparation. But that's going to be the the difference for this team going into it is, is they're going to enter into a very high level without preparation. And, and it'll be interesting to see how some of those younger guys respond. That's where we're going to need guys like like Briante Hunt and um, Trayvon Chisholm and Brian Conahan who have played to really step up and, and be our anchor. And then we're going to have to get good contributions from our younger guys. And one of the challenges that we're going to have is we have some depth to our roster. There's not a lot of difference between a number of guys. You know, for example, at our point guard position, uh, Gage Malensic is clearly our starter. And after him, we have three very capable guys that do different things well. And that's going to be a challenge for the coaching staff is figuring out our best rotations. And it may simply be, you know, you get a run and if you play well, you might get a second run. If you don't, then we move on to the next guy. Um, which can be difficult for, for players, but you know, at this point, that's the reality we're we're faced with. Talk about some of the challenges, Pat, that you know you've you've faced in the in the wake of this pandemic, and and how the team has been able to overcome them. Um, you know, I know there's been a lot of support from a lot of people around campus as well. Um, you were on WKOW the other day talking about the support of uh, UW System interim president Tommy Thompson. Uh, talk about that a little bit and uh, how the team has dealt with the pandemic. Well, you know, I always try to keep keep things in perspective. And, you know, you know, for example, my immediate family, we've, we've been fortunate in that, you know, my wife's in healthcare, and, you know, I've maintained my employment. Um, we've been, been healthy. You know, so for us, it, it's been, you know, a situation that that's not nearly as dire as other people. And, and I'm always cognizant of the fact that people have lost loved ones. Um, people have lost businesses. If they haven't lost businesses, they've lost money. They've had to go into retirements. They'd have to lay off longtime employees. So for a lot of people, this has been an incredibly devastating year. And, and so from that perspective, you know, we're talking about basketball. And, and so in the greater scheme of things, you know, is it the most important thing? Of course not. But having said that, for our guys individually, it is important to them. And it's important for them to have the interaction. It's important for them in terms of their college experience um, to have this extracurricular opportunity. And I think that's where our, our athletic director, our, our university um, administration, our chancellor have been very supportive and, and are, are very aware of that overall experience that they want our student athletes to have, our students in general. And so they've been supportive. I, I think Tommy Thompson was obviously very instrumental in making our season happen. The, the major stumbling block was testing and the cost of testing. You know, once we're playing outside in competition three times a week per NCAA protocols, and a lot of campuses were, were you know, quite frankly, probably not going to be able to get that done. And he stepped in. Um, he recognized the importance of this from a student experience, from a, a, you know, balancing mental health and everything that goes with it. And he made it happen. So, you know, we're really appreciative of the opportunity to play. Um, I think even when we weren't playing, just for our guys to be able to come and practice and compete and, 
get out of their rooms. You know, a lot of their classes are, as you know, are online. So they're not out about campus the way they typically are. So that was an interesting dynamic. Usually once you get three weeks into early season practice, they've had enough. They're ready to play outside people. Um, but this year was different. They, they really maintained a good intensity level, um, a good execution level, even though we weren't playing anyone outside. And I think part of that was they were just happy to have a place to go and blow off some steam and, and be with their friends. Good perspective there, Coach. Uh, but certainly, uh, certainly, we're looking forward to seeing uh, seeing the guys back out on the court next week. So, um, but I want to go back, Coach, a little bit to um, you know your playing career, your your start in coaching. Um, you know, bring me to the point where you know you decided you, that you wanted to get into coaching for a career. Um, you know, was that during? Was that while you were playing? Was that after your career was done? You know, take me through that process. You know, I, I've always loved sports. Uh, my dad was a, you know, 30 year plus. Um, he's in the Janesville Sports Hall of Fame, youth baseball coach. Um, you know, he coached while his kids were playing. He coached before he had kids. He coached af after we were done playing. He just loved the interaction. So, you know, even as a high school student, I helped coach youth football. I coach youth basketball. So I always had that interest in sports and obviously enjoyed playing sports. Um, as a student, I was a political science major. And, um, you know, my my thought was I wanted to go to law school. I had the opportunity to, to work for a law firm during school in the summers and, you know, had a, an interest in, in primarily criminal law. I really enjoyed constitutional law. And, you know, to make a long story short, and I was able to work on a very high profile case, which was very interesting. Um, the, the state attorney general came in to prosecute it rather than the county level because of the profile of the case. And, um you know, I learned a lot, but I also learned that that was probably not something that I wanted to do permanently with my life. You know, there was just elements of that that didn't sit well with me. And that's really I, when I decided I was going to get my um, my my teaching certification for secondary ed in Broadfield Social Studies. I went back the next year and helped Coach Vandermeulen. I got that done. Um, you know, then I had an opportunity to go play overseas, which I did. And that only lasted a, a few months because I got hurt. And had to come back. I was able to come back and student teach and then get a head high school coaching job in Harvard, Illinois, um, as my first job, which was, um, you know, a great opportunity for me to be a head coach right out of the gate um, and something I really enjoyed. So that that was really, you know, what was the determining factor for me is the area I was very interested in. I liked from a practical perspective. It's, it's not how I wanted to spend every day the rest of my life where athletics, you know, I feel fortunate. You know, in many respects, you feel like you don't have a job because it's fun. The interaction with the student athletes is great. Being in a college environment is great. Um, you know, so there's there's not very many days over the last 30 years where I've dreaded going to work, you know, probably a handful at most. I think anybody who works in certainly athletics and definitely college athletics uh, has that same feeling. It doesn't feel like work. Um, you know, but talk to me uh, in particular um, about your journey to the head coaching job at UW-Whitewater. Um, you know, you're taking over for a guy who won two national championships. Um, you were an assist. You were a, a student athlete for him. You were um, an assistant for him. You know, what was that like in, in kind of taking over um, and sort of not only maintaining that culture, that winning culture, but building on it as well? Well, it, it was good. And, and, you know, what I learned 
as a player and through the recruiting process is there's just certain people you connect with. Um, initially, I went to Platteville and, and played for Bo Ryan. And, you know, I enjoyed my time with him. I enjoyed, you know, playing for him. You know, I, I was not thrilled being in Platteville. It just wasn't a good fit for me. So I transferred to Wisconsin for a semester, contemplated walking on there um, and would go to the shell and play and, and played with a bunch of Whitewater alums. And they said, you know, you got to go down to Whitewater and, and take another look at it. And I did. And after the whole recruiting process and all the promises and broken promises, you know, I went down and played and Coach Vandermillen had me meet him at his house. He wasn't even around campus when I came down there. And he basically said, this is who we have. That's who you'd have to beat out. I think you could play for us, but it's up to you. And for me, that was just that level of honesty, simplicity was was very refreshing to me. And, and that kind of established the type of relationship we had. He's, he's very direct, he's very straightforward. Um, I liked being coached by him. I liked how he dealt with players. And so, you know, I enjoyed that relationship. And then moving, you know, forward from being his assistant, um, I learned a great deal for him, uh, from him. I, th I think, you know, in, in this time of, you know, all the, the racial injustices and the social justice era that we've been in through last summer, you know, he was someone that was very much on the forefront of that. You know, he advocated for minority students on this campus, you know, when very few people were talking about it or doing it, um, and, and not just the student athletes, you know, he had a great connection with the minority students across campus and my assistant coach, uh, Lamont Weaver, who was, who worked in student, um, minority student services, um, you know, so I learned a lot about coaching. I learned a lot about treating people well. Um, I learned a lot about advocating for people. And, and those are all things I tried to take into being a head coach at Whitewater. And in terms of the, the program success, you know, he obviously understood as well as anybody, you need players to win. You know, he, he was never enamored with himself as a coach. Um, I think to his detriment, he was not a self-promoter. He wasn't out there talking about himself or his system or, or all the great things he was doing to win. He recruited good players and he gave the credit to the players. And that was, and he believed that, you know, he thought if we won, it was because of what we did. And if we didn't win, it was also because of what we did or didn't do in a lot of cases. So I, I enjoyed that aspect of him. So I've always been, you know, really in tune to trying to get the best players available because I know that's the basis. So I, I think having great players has, has been a big part of our program, having stability within our assistant coaches. Todd Scribseth was a longtime assistant coach. Um, guys like Nick Bennett, who's doing an extraordinary job now at Racine St. Catharines, you know, our current staff, really good assistants. They, they understand our program. They work well with guys and, and are great advocates for them. So that has certainly helped us immensely. I think our booster club has been instrumental, um, you know, in terms of help providing resource for us. And I'm, I'm talking about over the course of, of decades, um, you know, 20, 25 years ago when we started the raffle auction, it simply allowed us to do things with our program we would never be able to do with the funding we had. And, you know, I will go to my grave with a great debt of gratitude towards our boosters and there's so many people that have helped our program in so many different ways over over many years, uh, because without them, it, it absolutely was not going to happen. And I think the other thing is that the culture of athletics at Whitewater has been strong. 
And I think a lot of people point to the, you know, the 2012, 13, 14, that era when it all kind of exploded. But even prior to that, th there was a strong support of athletics. I, th I think our department has been fortunate because we had innovators, you know, whether it was at the administrative level, you know, people like Dr. Diane Jones, who was a pioneer in women's basketball, a pioneer in women's sports. Uh, we had great advocacy at Whitewater for women's sports, people like Chris Russell, um, who was way ahead of her time as a coach. And then you had the Forrest Perkins, the Bob Brezowitz, Jim Miller, Dave Vandermillen, who all were, were very smart people who did a great job of, of trying to, you know, gather resources, do whatever they could to advocate for their program. And, and I think they created a culture that people like myself and John Lance Leopold that, that we took and, and were able to advance it to another step. But without the foundation that they laid for us, those things never would have been would never would have happened. So I think that culture and cooperation from the other entities around campus was really critical in in the overall success of not only our program but programs across the athletic department. Let's take a break to talk about Educators Credit Union. We're all educators in our own way. Whether you share knowledge in a classroom with your kids or with your friends, there's a teacher in you. That's why Educators Credit Union membership is open to anyone who works or lives in southeastern Wisconsin. To learn more about joining us, visit ecu.com or call toll-free 1-800-236-5898. That's ecu.com or toll-free 1-800-236-5898. Educators Credit Union, achieving more together. Now, back to the podcast. Pat, you look in your first kind of decade as head coach, um, you know, just kind of running running through, it's, it's really consistent. Um, you're consistently among the top half of the league, four WIC championships, four trips to the NCAA tournament over your first 10 years. Um, I know that 2009-2010 area is, is really highly regarded um, by people around the program as teams that um, you know, had they not been placed in a, you know, really difficult NCA regional might have might have advanced to the final four and could have won a national championship. Um, you know, but it really uh, for your for your program and your tenure, it kind of uh, came to, you know, your first crescendo really in 2011-12 um, when you go on to win that national championship. Chris Davis is the national player of the year. Um, you know, talk about some of the hallmarks of that team and, and how uh, it was able to, you know, win that third national championship in the program's history. Yeah, I think there were a lot of factors that went into it. And, you know, you noted that the 2009 team, um, we, we had a great first round game against Elmhurst at Elmhurst, who, who was maybe the best team they've ever had. Uh, we won in overtime. Miles McKay had an amazing game. And our reward for that was playing the defending national champions, Wash U. On a neutral court, um, we had two free throws uh, to tie the game, and we did not convert. And then we had a three-pointer at the buzzer that just missed. That would have tied the game. And it was interesting. I ran into Wash U goes on to win the national championship, and I ran into their legendary head coach, Mark Edwards, at a, a clinic in Chicago where we were both speaking that spring. And, you know, I talked with him. I, I really liked what they were doing offensively. And, you know, two things he did that day is one, he said, I don't know if this is going to make you feel better or worse, but you guys were by far the best team we played. And, and that was essentially the national championship game in my mind. They went on and they rolled everybody from that point forward. So, and, and as he knew it would, it definitely made me feel worse. 
And the other thing he did is um, I, I loved what they were doing offensively, and he gave me their whole system. And he said, I don't care if people know what we do. If we execute, you're not going to be able to stop it anyway. And we implemented that system, which I think really helped us. It, it encompassed a lot of the concepts that I liked offensively. It was very good for that personnel. And, you know, we had kind of an unheralded team. You know, they kind of had a rough um, year in 2011. You know, we were good, but it was definitely a developmental year. Chris Davis, who goes on to be the national player of the year, had a good year, not a great year. Uh, but it was really a valuable learning experience. And then that following year, that, that group just really blossomed. They had great chemistry, uh, really good defensively. And, and Chris Davis was just an elite player at our level. He could, he was a matchup nightmare for people. He could score in a lot of different ways. And he was a winner. You know, he was going to try to figure out game, ways to win games. And I, I would put Alex Merg in that same category, Eric Bryson in that category, Cordell Young in that category. So, you know, we had a core group of guys who wanted to win basketball games. They didn't care about their numbers. They didn't care how we did it. They were very mature. They prepared well. And I think during that time, that was indicative of, of a number of programs. And I remember specifically talking with guys on the football team, you know, how, how so-and-so look and just very straightforward. This is what, you know, they do well. This is what they don't do very well. And, and I think during that time, th there became an expectation to win and not win conference championships, but win national championships and be elite. And, and you know, I'm a big believer in sports psychology. And, and I think that was a major element of our overall programmatic success. You know, I think a lot of places they have pretty good teams, but they don't have that belief. They haven't seen teams win national championships. No one in their program has ever won it, and it becomes a block. And, you know, I look at a program like Augustana, who's had great team after great team, has played in national championships, and they can't win one. And you, you wonder what that block is. And I think, you know, 2012, you know, I discussed the playing aspect, and probably from my aspect is I didn't try as hard. You know, I, I think early on, you know, with some of those other teams, I, I was probably trying too hard to win. And once I kind of stepped back, put more trust in the players and just kind of said, all right, these guys are going to have to get it done or not. You know, I probably put less pressure on them, probably put less pressure on myself. And as a result, I think we probably played better. Pat, talk about that national championship game that season. Um, it was against Cabrini, uh, trailed by double digits in the second half. I think it was all the way up to 18, about five minutes in. Um, you end up coming back to win. Um, talk about that game and your memories, because that was a, definitely one of those games that uh, really goes down in, his, in our history as, you know, one of the best, most memorable. Well, it was it was certainly a memorable game, and you know we had a really good semifinal game against Wash U, or I'm sorry, against uh, Illinois Wesleyan, who was who was very good. Oh, I'm sorry, that was that was 14. So 2012, we played MIT. MIT. Yep. MIT, and, and we had a fairly easy game, and Cabrini knocked off Illinois Wesleyan, who was very good, and and who we probably expected to play. And we get to the Cabrini Cabrini game, and and they were very athletic. Um, and they were one of the few teams we played all year that, that had a suitable matchup for Chris Davis because they had a really athletic big player who could guard him on the perimeter and inside. Uh, they had an outstanding point guard who was an All-American, and they were very good defensively. We just had problems scoring. 
we got down big and you know i think they lost a little bit of of focus they got a little complacent i think they were celebrating a little early and, and I, I can remember it like it was yesterday it was, they had the ball we were down big and they got lazy with an inbounds pass and we stole it and went down and scored and then we got another stop and cordell young went on a tear just started attacking the basket and it went from 18 to around 10, nine, pretty quickly. And, and I knew once we got it under 10, you know, then a lot of different things could happen. And it was just the thing I remember most about that game is how significant the momentum change was. Once we started coming back, we were definitely playing downhill and they were definitely on their heels. And, um, you know, it, it was a great comeback, but, but again, it was indicative of those guys. They didn't panic. Uh, they didn't lose belief, and and when they got going and got some confidence, it, it really turned quickly. It's it's a great lesson, and you know I've coached long enough. I've been in games where we've, you know, we were in the conference tournament semifinals at Stevens Point against a really good Stevens Point team, and we were down twenty one, and we came back and won. You know, I don't want to say going away, but we won comfortably down the stretch. You know, we were played Loris one time. We were up twenty at halftime in a holiday tournament and got beat. So. You know, momentum changes are critical. So, you know, even though we were down, you know, I, I knew, you know, the game was not over. And, and the one thing you learn in those NCAA games is the momentum changes are more significant and they're more heightened. And, and, and so once it turned, it turned in a big way and we had enough to get it done. So it was a, it was a, it was a great win. Um, you know, I don't know if I'd want every game to be like that, but it was certainly fun. Two years later, coach, you go back, go back to the final four. Um, you know, you've got some, some of the same guys, you know, that you talked about, Alex Merg, Cordell Young, uh, Cody Odegaard was on that team. Um, I believe that was Bryson, Eric Bryson as well. Yeah. Um, but you got some new guys. KJ Evans is in the fold. Reggie Hearn is in the fold. Um, Patrick Suter, I think, was on that 14 team. Um, you know, talk, talk to me about that team and, and how that run, um, you know, maybe was a little bit, that season, that run, maybe was a little bit different than the 2012 team. It was different. We, we definitely had higher expectations. You know, Cody's another guy I should have mentioned on the 12 team that, that was instrumental. Um, but we had lost Alex Edmonds, who played a big role in 2012, uh, Luke Noble, who played a significant role. But again, we, we, we added guys. You know, KJ Evans was dynamic, um, you know, different than Chris Davis, but also an inside outside player that, that was difficult for matchups and, and a great competitor who wanted to win. Uh, Patrick Suter, um, you know, a Division One transfer who was hampered his whole career with uh, multiple ACL injuries, came from Milwaukee and, and just a, a really, really good player and, and a great human being. And, and he's a guy who, you know, accepted his role coming off the bench. Uh, he was a defensive terror, uh, you know, and, and that was a key to that team is Alex Merg would hound the, the, the opposing point guard up and down the floor. We'd bring in Suter, who was equally as effective um, defensively. And, and that was a great, you know, lead to our defense is putting their point guards under a lot of distress for 40 minutes. And, and again, a team that had good chemistry. We had, you know, numerous guys, as you noted, that that played on the 12 team that had been through it, that had experienced it and, and been successful with it. So that experience helped us. And, and again, it was a, a great championship game. We, we played Williams um, and, you know, they started out man to man and we just we shredded them. They couldn't guard us. Uh, we went they went to zone. 
uh, which changed the game. It changed the pace of the game. They got back into it. And then, of course, you know, probably one of the, if not the most famous play in, in, in Warhawk basketball history, certainly in the top two or three, you know, Cordell Young gets the outlet down one with under four seconds to go and goes coast to coast and makes a layup and gets fouled. And, you know, we win another national championship in dramatic fashion. And, and again, you know, we talked earlier about about players. I, I don't know if there's, you know, two or three point guards in the country at our level that could have made the play that he did, that, that could have gone that distance and that amount of time cutting through the defense. And, and that's where, you know, we have a lesser point guard. That play doesn't happen. So, uh, again, credit to, to him and that team for, you know, hanging in there and not panicking when, you know, that, that's tough when a team has a tip in under four seconds to go down in the national championship game. But they didn't flinch and they made the play and, and got the W. Yeah, and I want to zero in on that last play a little bit. You know, we had Cordell on the podcast um, earlier uh, this, I think, about a, about a month ago now, and he basically took me through, and I was very impressed, kind of frame by frame of that play. Um, and, and I'm sure he's watched it a bunch of times, but I still think that memory, um, you know, that you almost see in like a like a LeBron James, just the way they remember that the 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 minutia of that play. Um, and one of the things he talked about was the preparation um, and putting them in situations in practice, you know, where they have to race up the floor with, you know, 4.2 seconds left and score before the buzzer. How do you prepare? How, how did you prepare for that moment? Um, and how do you do that sort of every season, you know, in practice? How do you replicate a moment like that? Well, you know, a, a couple things. One, you know, the, the post-game press conference, um, you know, Cordell was in there. They asked me questions and they asked him about the play. And to your point, he spoke in detail about exactly what happened. And I'm sitting there quietly thinking to myself, like, there's no way that you remember every detail like that. And I went back and watched the film and he remembered every detail. Um, so, you know, I think you talk about great athletes have the ability to slow things down. You know, to me, that was a good indication of, of his ability to slow the play down, see exactly what was happening and, and respond to it in real time. But in terms of the preparation, again, philosophically, you know, that's something I learned from Coach Vanderbilt. You know, I, I'm 100 percent convinced if we call time out there, which we had one left, we don't win that game because it, it allows the defense to set. It allows them to make substitutions. And it allows your team to contemplate, oh, my God, there's, you know, we're under four seconds and we're, we're not losing. And, and I think catching a defense off guard, um, you know, and I remember the play, it was like slow motion, you know, because the right person has to take the ball out of bounds, which K.J. Evans did. Um, and, and you see plays all the time where guys don't do their jobs. You know, I think the Packers NFC championship loss to the Seattle is a great example where a guy who's supposed to block tries to field the kick um, and and they lose it and, and end up losing the game. So everybody did their job. KJ took the ball out of bounds. Um, we got it to Cordell moving up the floor, which is critical. If he has to come back and get the ball, that takes significant time off the clock. And so he caught it with a head of steam. And, you know, I was watching closely because there was quite a bit of traffic at half court. And I remember thinking if he gets trapped and he's no longer able to advance, then we probably would have had to call timeout. Uh, but he sliced through there. And, and that was really the first time that I had any anxiety because I knew he was going to get to the basket. I just I didn't know 
in in my mind if there was enough enough time for him to do it. Um, but but again, we want to put guys in that situation, and we want them to know this is what we're going to do. You know, we want to attack the basket. We want to put pressure on the defense, and having a plan is critical. And, and I'll tell you. You know, we, we had a we have an end of game play that in the 20 years I've been here, we've probably used four times and twice was in one game at the end of regulation at the end of the first overtime. And it was at Eau Claire and we won the conference championship as a result of it. So so oftentimes these these plays and these preparations, you, you don't use the plays very often. You know, you look back to Villanova a couple of years ago when they hit the three on that great end of the game play. I'm sure that's something they practice all the time and use rarely. Um, but you have to be prepared for those things because in the biggest moments, that's when you have to execute. Today's podcast is also brought to you by Culver's, a proud partner of UW-Whitewater Athletics and the Wisconsin Intercollegiate Athletic Conference. Culver's recognizes the student-athletes of the WIC for their hard work, dedication, and commitment to excellence on and off the field. Located just minutes from campus right here in Whitewater, Culver's, welcome to Delicious. I want to shift gears again, Pat, a little bit. Um, you know, over the years, you've been very, like you said, you've been very lucky to, you know, coach a lot of good players. You've had a lot of strong players come through your program. Um, you know, you've had a number of All-Americans, uh, you know, Jeremy Manchester, Matt Goodwin, Miles McKay, who you mentioned earlier, Dustin Mitchell, who was in that 09-10 area, um, Chris Davis, KJ Evans, uh, Cordell Young. You know, re recently you've had some really good players come through the program as well. Um, you know, I think about a guy like Trinzen White comes in um, and, and, and does some damage for, for his senior year. Um, you know, and then you have your four-year guys, you know, like an Andre Brown who comes in and is, by the time his career is done, he's a first-team all-WIC type of player. Um, so tell me a little bit about your recruiting, um, you know, philosophy, and, and I guess anywhere that you focus particularly from a geographical standpoint, you know, the types of players that you're looking for coming out of high school or coming from other colleges. Uh, we, we try to get a good balance, and, and I think to win big, you need difference makers. And, and oftentimes at a school where you're non-scholarship, it, it's difficult to get difference makers out of high school. You know, I, I think people like Cordell Young, you know, that's an anomaly. You know, we, we got lucky. I, I think that southeast part of the state is is under a little bit under recruited. I don't think the players down there probably get the amount of respect that some players in other areas of the state get. So I look at that situation. We we're lucky, you know, but but there's also every year two or three Cordell Youngs that we recruit hard that we we don't get. They go to prep schools, they go to junior colleges, they get scholarship offers late. So that's one of the challenges for us is, is we have to try to get scholarship level players. We would love to get them right out of high school, but but oftentimes we don't. Um, I think what, where we've been successful is, is we do a good job in our relationships with those players. And that's why oftentimes they want to come back. They, they realize you know, junior college isn't for them or the division two or low level division one school they went to is not for them, you know, for a variety of reasons, whether it's family, geographical, academic, whatever, they want to come back. And, and because we have good relationships, you know, we're a natural place for them to look. So we've, we've been able to combine solid four year players, you know, like a Cody Odegaard and a Cordell Young 
with players like Eric Bryson, who went to Winona State and tried to play there, Chris J. Davis, who went to Madison College and, and was a scholarship level player, obviously. Uh, KJ Evans was a junior college transfer. So we, we, we've always had that, that mixture in trying to find that balance of, of solid, you know, I would, Alex Edmonds, Luke Noble on those good teams, again, four year guys. So we've always had that balance in, in, in the geographic area we're in. There's a lot of recognition for players in Madison, Milwaukee, uh, James O'Bloid area. And, and so those guys get recruited. And, um, you know, so it's, it's a plus because we have such a large population and good basketball around us. Uh, it's gotten increasingly more difficult to get high level players. If you look at the number of Wisconsin high school players that get scholarships now compared to 15 years ago, it's light years different. M far more kids are getting scholarships. Uh, I think Wisconsin basketball was a bit of an unknown quantity uh, for a while. I think over the last decade and a half that that's changed pretty significantly. So, you know, it's made recruiting definitely more challenging. Um, but, you know, obviously to, to try to maintain success, you have to make adjustments and, and continue to do what's going to help you be successful. Coach, one topic um, that I wanted to touch on with you, um, you know, that we haven't talked about publicly yet um, is the passing of Lucas Burns. Um, you know, that was a, a member of that 2012 national championship team that we that we spoke about earlier. Um, you know, Lucas passed away in late August, um, you know, an outpouring of support for him and his family um, because he was a, you know, a, a guy who was really good ambassador for your program and for our university. Um, a business owner in our community, a huge supporter of our teams, um, you know, and a, and a, and a kind person. Um, talk about Lucas and how he represented the program so well. You know, it, it's, you know, it, it's a devastating loss. And, you know, to this day, it's one of those things I, I still can't even believe that, that he's, he's not with us anymore. Um, as you know, I've spent a lot of time with him, a lot of time at the restaurant. Um, you know, he played at Janesville Craig, my alma mater for my brother. And, and he's a guy we, we talked about. He went, got a Division II scholarship to Concordia University in St. Paul, uh, decided it was not for him. He came back and, you know, he was instrumental in a leadership role um, with that 2012 team without question. You know, his, his playing role was not insignificant, but his leadership role was far more significant in how he held that team together. And, and that's just the, the kind of guy he was. Um, you know, there, it's it's very rare in in this time to have people who are universally liked. And, and I think Lucas Burns was universally liked. You know, it, it didn't matter who went to him for what, he was going to try to accommodate people. He was going to be supportive of whether it was Warhawk sports, Whippet sports, uh, different community endeavors. He, he was a very caring, a very giving, and, and as you noted, just a very kind person and, and his entire family. And, um, you know, the out, outpouring of support, you know, w was not a surprise to anybody who knew him. It, it's just, you know, it, it's a devastating loss in, in so many respects because he meant so much to so many people. And as you noted, you know, an amazing ambassador for our program. You know, if, if you had a model for how you would like your players to be and how how they conduct themselves and, and how they mesh with the community and, and other organizations, you know, he would be the best example possible. So, you know, it, it's still a, a devastating loss. And, 
um, it's, it's, it's really a tough one. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, coach, I, I, I want to kind of wrap up a little bit here. Um, I'm going to ask you some kind of quick hitter type questions, but first I wanted, um, you know, just to circle back to kind of the, the upcoming season, um, which of course, as we alluded to starts Wednesday, February 3rd, seven o'clock UW Stevens point, um, that game will be streamed online and, uh, on cable locally, UWW TV. Um, but just give me, you know, kind of your expectations and what you're hoping to see from the guys when they, when they run out on, uh, on Wednesday and take on the pointers. You know, you know, Chris, it's, it's tough. Cause, cause I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I know they're going to play hard. Uh, I know they're going to play together and, um, you know, and, and we'll see how they perform. And as you know, you've been around athletics long enough. There, there are certain guys, they're great in practice and you get them against outside competition. They're not as good. There's other guys who kind of tolerate practice and get through it. And then you put them in front of an outside opponent and they elevate their game. So, you know, there, there's a lot of unknowns, but, you know, the one thing that has been consistent with this group has been their work ethic, has been their ability to share the ball. So I expect we'll see that. Um, you know, the real question mark is going to be, you know, how are some of these freshmen going to respond? Guys like Derek Ray or Dane Armwald. Um, you know, we did lose uh, Caleb Flattenmore, um, who was a freshman center who was playing great. Uh, he had an ACL injury, so we lost him for the year, which helped, hurts our inside depth a little bit. But, um, you know, I'm confident in terms of, of, like I said, how hard they're going to play. Um, but we'll see where they're at from a technical perspective. Um, you know, how they function in, in a high level game against good competition uh, is going to be interesting for us to see. All right. Well, I want to wrap up, Pat. Um, like I said, just kind of some uh, kind of quick type of questions here for you. Um, so a little bit, a little bit different from what I've been asking you about so far, but uh, talk to me, give me your favorite restaurant in Whitewater. True. That's a tough one, you know, because so many of the people support us so well. And, you know, I like going to the different venues. I'd, I'd have to say for breakfast, I, I have to go Jessica's. Yeah. Then um, I'd have to throw 841 in there as my uh, favorite lunch dinner establishment. Give me your uh, favorite spot on campus. And let's say other than other than the Williams Center or the gym. I would say I, I like the university center. Uh, you know, I like being in the middle of campus. It's it's good to be around the students. Um, it's always fun to take a walk over there and just get a feel for the campus. So I, I'd say the, the the middle of campus, the university center. Give me your favorite professional sports theme. You know, I would have to say the Brewers. Um, I, I enjoy the Packers. I love football, um, but but I really like baseball. I played a lot of baseball growing up. Um, you know, that's kind of our off season. So it's a little lower key and I have some time to watch it. So I, I, I enjoy the Brewers a lot. Give me your favorite vacation spot. You know, we've been fortunate. We've taken our kids a lot of different places. I would say my favorite spot has been Aruba. Uh, we spent a week down there and I loved it down there. It was great. Gorgeous. Uh, last one. Give me your pregame ritual or superstition if you've got one. You know, I don't I don't have a specific one. You know, what I tend to do, for example, in 2012, um, it became a pregame tradition that I would go out for lunch with Lance Leopold and Jim Boyd uh, because, it, one, it was fun. Two, we were winning games. So 
I tend to, if something's working, I stick with it. You know, if we lose, I may banish a tie uh, for the rest of that season. Or if, you know, I eat something and we win, then I may duplicate that meal. So it's probably more uh, impromptu little things that come and go as opposed to anything specific I do day in and day out. All right. Well, Coach, thanks again for joining me today on Inside Warhawk Athletics presented by Educators Credit Union. I uh, really appreciate the time and wish you all the best moving forward. All right. Well, thank you, Chris. I appreciate it.